And thanks for joining us again uh, online. We're glad that you can connect with us this way as we're going through this series uh, called The Problem of God. Um, it was great to see many of you out at our Zoom call on Friday evening, and I look forward to engaging some more of you this coming Friday as we look at the Christ myth. Okay, and the the 10th person uh, to join the call this week, I'm going to be giving away the book, The Case for Christ uh, by Lee Strobel. So if you're the 10th person to join the call, uh, you'll be able to win that book. Also, um, the author of the book that we're studying, The Problem of God, Mark Clark, uh, reached out to him and he agreed to join us on one of our Zoom calls as well. So on February 5th, Friday, February 5th, uh, he's going to jump on right at the beginning at 7 o'clock uh, just to say hi to us and share a few thoughts with us. So uh, put that down on your calendar uh, and I'm sure you'd uh, enjoy connecting with him uh, as well. So today we're looking at a little bit of a controversial topic, and I know it's uh, something that might provoke some disagreement, maybe some questions, maybe some uh, contentions, and what we're looking at is the problem of sex, okay? And let me just say first off, I can't deal with every single question or every single detail or every single subpoint to this because it's a really big uh, theme and topic and maybe uh, at a future date, maybe we'll dig into this a little bit more. Uh, so I'm going to be speaking more in some generalities uh, this morning, but I want you to understand and know the heart of Jesus, my heart and the heart of our church community is that we love you, we care for you, uh, and we want to be open to uh, dialogue with you about some of these issues and know and understand that Jesus' heart is redemptive and he invites us in to fellowship with him, to community with him, to a relationship with him. And in whatever we talk about today, please always remember Jesus loves you, he cares for you, and he invites you into relationship with him to know his love, kindness, and grace no matter where we are uh, in this journey. Okay. Uh, if you have questions and thoughts, I'd love to be able to uh, connect with you more. So feel free to send me an email or connect with me another way. Also, um, you feel free to connect with your life group leaders as well as we discuss some of these things in our life groups uh, this week. And so we hope that in discussion, again, on a Sunday morning, we can't go into so many different details, but I hope that as we discuss and, and talk about this and work this uh, together in community, uh, that we would seek after truth and bring some clarity to some of these hard and difficult questions. And as I said, even with other topics in this series, I'm not expecting that everyone will agree with everything. And if you're joining us here uh, this morning and you're a skeptic and you're questioning and you're uncertain, thank you so much for joining. Not expecting that everyone would agree, but I'm asking that at least with a sincere and an honest and a rational heart to be able to look and seek after uh, the truth. So let's uh, dive into this. Uh, I think Bernie's ready as well. So um, we're going to look at what this problem of sex is, okay? Uh, when people often think about uh, Christians and sex, uh, there's a common misconception, a common uh, maybe understanding that Christians are anti-sex or God is anti-sex and he doesn't want us to experience and enjoy the fullness of, uh, of sex, but maybe there's a consideration of so many other restrictions that come along with it. And maybe this is not spoken about much and maybe even less from the, from the pulpit on a Sunday morning. And so that's why I want to look at some of these things this morning. Um, sometimes maybe we might be tempted to abandon the teachings of the Word of God, the teachings of the Bible in favor of culture and what our culture and society teach us and propagate. And I hope by the end of this message that we would have maybe a, a a better holistic understanding of sex and why God has gifted it to us and what its purpose is in our life as well. Now, the, the primary objection uh, to the Bible's teachings on, on sex and sexuality actually come from uh, Western society of the really back to the Enlightenment period and how there is a desire for us to be free to do whatever we want, to be able to exercise our, our, our free will. We do this with money, with business, with houses, with, with speech, with family. So why should it not apply to our sex lives? And any time that we feel maybe constrained or restrained or limited, um, or told not to do something, then we feel like our will has been crossed and all the more we wanna be able to do that. 
And so the difficulty here is to be able to uh, understand what God's heart really is and what he says uh, in his word and understand that God and the Bible are not anti-sex. Actually, he's very much pro-sex because he's created us as sexual beings. He's created, created us to enjoy uh, sex, and that's why we derive pleasure uh, from that uh, experience, okay? In the uh, book, The Problem of God, Mark Clark says, sex is much more than just a personal autonomous experience. It is two people taking pleasure in God's creation in a myriad of fun and exciting ways. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. I'm going to just uh, focus on three things, actually. The first and three sort of sort of perceptions and uh, misconceptions, actually, let's say. The first is that sex is bad. The second is that sex is God. And the third is that sex is appetite. So let's dive right into this, okay? So the first thing, sex is bad. This Christianity often gets stigmatized from the culture around us that sex is bad and that we look negatively upon that. Now, part of it has to do with historical Christianity and maybe some of uh, the early church fathers or writings that were at that time that maybe looked down upon on sex. Others have to do with maybe even fringe groups uh, and extreme groups that teach against sex. Even Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 3 that there'll come a time when people will even forbid to marry, but that's not part of what God's word teaches. And, and others have a general maybe misgiving or misunderstanding of why God created sex. And so I want to just show you some scriptures to show and, and prove to you that God is very much pro-sex. If you look in Genesis 2 verse 25, it says, now the man and his wife were both naked, but they felt no shame. This is when God created Adam and Eve, and they were naked, and they didn't feel any shame. God, everything that God created was good. He said it was very good, right? Proverbs 5, uh, the, the, the language that's used here actually extols sex and how it should be enjoyed within the context of a marriage relationship. It says, let your wife be a fountain of blessing for you. Rejoice in the wife of your youth. She is a loving deer, a graceful doe. Let her breast satisfy you always. May you always be captivated by her love. And you're thinking, well, that's in the Bible? Yeah, that's in the Bible, right? It's, it's, uh, you can see some very uh, uh, sexually suggestive literature that's in the Bible, even in the book of Song of Solomon. Uh, if you read through that book, right at the beginning of that book, it says, kiss me, this is the, the woman speaking, kiss me and, um, and kiss me again, for your love is sweeter than wine. Even in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul speaks about the necessity of the sexual relationship in marriage and that it should be uh, there in order to please one another. 1 Corinthians 7 verse 3, the husband should fulfill his wife's sexual needs and the wife should fulfill her husband's needs. So uh, I'm using all of these verses in the Bible to show you in God's word that God is very much pro-sex. Right? He's not anti-sex, he's not against it, because he's actually the creator of sex. And, and in, the, in the right context and in the right way, God wants us to enjoy sex because he's created us to be sexual beings, right? Um, and, and that's what we need to understand. In uh, the book, This Momentary Marriage, written by John Piper, he says, marriage is patterned after Christ's covenant relationship to his redeemed people, the church. And therefore, the highest meaning and the most ultimate purpose of marriage is to put the covenant relationship of Christ and his church on display. And so this is what I want us to understand in, in, in the heart of God, what God really desires for us to understand in marriage, in this covenantal relationship, to enjoy sex. It's actually pointing towards Christ. And we're going to look at that a little bit as we go on in this message. So many times we focus um, not, uh, we focus like on the, on the do nots, don't do this and don't do that. But actually, God is saying he wants us to enjoy marriage, enjoy sex, because it points us towards Christ. Mark Clark says in his book, you see sex, while not the most important thing in life, is not bad or something to be avoided. It is beautiful, God-given, and should be enjoyed in the context of marriage. 
right? And so God wants us um, to understand the purpose. Again, from that quote that we just read before that, the the purpose of marriage as it points us towards Christ, as it points us to this covenantal relationship between husband and wife and also between Christ uh, and the church. Uh, Often there are consequences uh, in our relationships of going too far when it comes to sex, whether it's adultery or premarital sex or pornography, but many times we don't consider the consequences of not going far enough when it comes to sex in marriage. Many times there are people and marriages and relationships that are affected when, as we read in that previous verse in Corinthians, when the husband is not not honoring the needs of his wife or the wife is not honoring the needs uh, of her husband. Now, let me just take a a moment to speak to Christian couples that are listening in today. I don't want want you to use Paul's words uh, in a demanding way or in an abusive way because we have to remember the spirit of Christ is one of self-sacrifice. The spirit of Christ is one of self-denial and considering the needs of others. And so in this covenantal relationship of marriage, when Paul says the husband should, get, should meet the needs of his wife and the wife should meet the needs of her husband uh, in a sexual way, remember that we do this out of sacrifice. Remember that it's done considering the needs of others and not uh, our own needs. Sam uh, Alberry, who's written a lot about the sexual relationship and in many different contexts about what sex and marriage looks like uh, in God's word. In his book, Why Does God Care Who I Sleep With? He says this, sexuality and marriage are about self-giving. The focus of the spouses is to be like Christ, aimed aimed at accomplishing the good of the other. See, this is the real heart of God that we don't look at our own needs, we actually look at the needs of others. And so when we're talking about sex within the marriage relationship, we're actually thinking about the needs of others and we're seeking to honor our husband or seeking to honor uh, our wife, right? But we're also not demanding of it because it is done out of self-sacrifice. In in the book, The Problem of God, uh, Mark Clark goes on to talk a little bit about uh, giving statistics, talking about frequency of having sex in order to uh, have this relationship within the context of marriage being something that's fruitful and flourishing and helping to build the marriage uh, together. And I'd like to encourage you, you can read a little bit more in the book, but I'd like to encourage you that if you're struggling in this area, if you're a couple and you're uh, having different in this area, I want to encourage you to seek out a counselor, seek out somebody that can help you uh, in this. We have a couple of good counselors as well that we can recommend to you from our own church um, that can uh, help you in these areas as well. And I want you just, uh, I want you to, to enjoy and understand that sex is used in order to bring two people closer together in intimate fellowship because it points us towards Christ. Now it takes work. It takes sacrifice, it takes learning, it takes growing in order to actually enjoy sex to its fullest. And that's why actually we can understand that married couples actually enjoy sex much more than even unmarried couples. Um, In The Problem of God, he says, a survey of uh, uh, of sexuality conducted jointly by researchers at State University of New York, at Stony Brook, and at the University of Chicago called the most authoritative ever by the U.S. News and World Report, found that of all sexually active people, the most physically pleased and emotionally satisfied were married couples. Why? Because it takes work. It takes sacrifice. It takes learning. And it takes growth that can be found in this mutual relationship of marriage, right? There's a myth out there that the single life is great, where you could sleep around and have as many relationships as you want and have lots of great sex and you would be, you know, delighted and joyful and and it would be wonderful. But what it really fails to acknowledge is the holistic part of sex. Because sex is not just a physical act, but it's an intimate act that connects us physically, spiritually, and emotionally. That's why the Bible says that two people become one flesh. And if you doubt this, just ask anyone who sadly has had to, God, had to have gone through some sexual abuse or faced some type of trauma uh, in a sexual nature. Ask them if it's just a physical act. It's not. 
There's a deep spiritual and emotional pain that happens when there is some type of sexual abuse or some type of act that violates someone. And if you turn that around all the more, in the intimacy of sex and in the intimacy of marriage, there is a profound spiritual and emotional connection that takes place in the physical act of sex. The intimacy of sex has great power to draw people together, to make them one as God intended and God created it to be, not to be abused, but to, be, to bring people together. God is pro-relationships, just as he is pro-sex. And that's why in the Garden of Eden, when he created Adam, and he was all alone, the word of God says that God says it's not good for man to be alone, so he created Eve and gave Eve as a partner to Adam. And throughout scripture, we see many circumstances, many situations and verses where marriage actually is exalted and exemplified. Even in the Old Testament, uh, there's a part that says that if you're a soldier in the army of Israel and if you get married, well, you gotta take a whole year off just to stay with your wife and enjoy your wife and be with your wife for a whole year, right? because God honors marriage and that relationship is so important. Hebrews 13 verse four says, give honor to marriage and remain faithful to one another in marriage, right? And if you don't believe me of how much God actually ex exalts marriage, read Song of Solomon, right? And also note the, the, the use of the different people in this, uh, uh, in this uh, book in Song of Solomon of the bride and the bridegroom and all the imagery that's actually given there. Uh, in the problem of God, he says, the Bible is clear. Sex was not just made for procreation, but for pleasure. To redeem sex from all the dysfunctional ways it is abused and used means that we celebrate it as a gift given to us for our enjoyment to the glory of God. See, sex is not bad, but God has given it to us for enjoyment, for pleasure, so that we can really understand and know also the heart of God, right? It points us towards that, right? Um, in C.S. Lewis's uh, book, The Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis wrote this book called The Screwtape Letters, and it's actually a, a conversation between an, an older demon or devil and a younger demon or devil. So the, the older one is trying to train and teach the younger demon and devil how to uh, tempt Christians, how to get Christians to sin, how to get uh, Christians to stray away from God. It's a quite imaginative and interesting story that C.S. Lewis puts together based on a lot of truth on what he sees in scripture and trying to imagine what it might sort of be like. And he says this um, in, uh, in the Screwtape Letters that actually talks a little bit about why pleasure is actually a creation of God, not a creation of the enemy or not a creation of the devil. So he says in the Screwtape Letters to the, the older demon speaking to the younger demon, okay? Now I'm gonna read this to you so you have to put yourself in their shoes and think when he says the enemy, he's actually using the word enemy to refer to God because this is an older demon talking to a, a younger demon and trying to teach him the way that actually God, the quote unquote enemy works, right? So he says, he, speaking of God, is a hedonist at heart. All those fasts and vigils and stakes and crosses are only a facade or only like foam on the seashore. Out of the sea, out of his sea, there is pleasure and more pleasure. He makes no secret of it. At his right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. And then he says this, never forget that when we, again, the devils and demons, are dealing with any pleasure in its in its healthy and normal and satisfying form, we are, in a sense, on the enemies, meaning God, right, ground. I know we have won many a soul through pleasure. All the same, it is his invention, not ours. He made the pleasures. And so what happens is because God is the creator of that pleasure, he's the creator of the pleasure that's found in sex, but what happens is that the enemy tries to take it and twist it and distort it, right? Takes it away from actually what it should really be, okay? So, so sex is not bad, but it's, it's pleasurable. It, it, he's created it for us so that we can enjoy one another and also draw closer to the Lord as we understand that sex unites us physically, emotionally, spiritually, and points us to Christ's love for us.
The second thing, sex is God. This is a, another view that runs totally contrary to what God wants us to know and understand about sex. And viewing it as God makes us think that sex is the ultimate thing. It's the priority. It's where we find our identity, right? Um, it, it becomes like the most important thing in our life. And in the culture today that we live in, we see that sex and sexuality and all of the other things that come along with it actually cause people to think that that is where their identity is held. But the beauty of what Jesus offers to us is that he offers us identity in him as our creator. The moment we seek identity in other people, in pleasure, in purpose, in position, or in anything else, we lose how and what God has given to us in his love and the identity that he's given, uh, given to us. In, first John, in John chapter 1 and verse 12, it says, But to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. This is the identity we need to embrace. Not, a, not an identity of a sexual nature, but an identity in Christ and in God that he has made us his children. He's called us to be his children. Jackie Hill Perry, who's uh, written some books and talks about um, sexuality and talks about how to deal with various um, difficulties uh, in the sexual realm, she says this about identity. I don't believe it is wise or truthful to the power of the gospel to identify oneself by one's sins of one's past or the temptations of one's present, but rather to only be defined by the Christ who's overcome both for those he calls his own. All men and women, including myself, that are well acquainted with sexual temptation are ultimately not what our temptations say of us. We are what Christ had done for us. Therefore, our ultimate identity is very simple. We are Christians, or as we read in John, we are children of God. It's so easy for us to wrap up our identity in something else. It's so easy for us to make sex God as the ultimate thing in our life, as what we're, we're looking for and, what, and everything that we process about our culture and our world is through this lens of sex and it becomes like God to us. But Christ wants us to find our identity in him, right? In The Problem of God, Mark Clark says, in this perspective, sex is not seen merely as a good, but as an ultimate good. See, sex is, is raised up to be something that it's even, that it's more than what it should be. Remember, sex is, is not bad. God is pro-sex. But he doesn't want us to lift it up to a place that is unhealthy. And so he says, a defining good. It becomes the central component to our identity as human beings and thus freely satisfying our sexual appetites in whatever way we want is essential to our emotional uh, health and development. Now, this is not a good place to be, is if, if we've elevated sex to this place in our lives where we're looking at everything through this lens, and then even our, 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 our health and our development actually and our identity is found in this. Margaret Sanger, who, who um, was a person uh, many years ago that pushed for sexual liberation and, and uh, things like that, she said this, sexual liberation is the only method to finding inner peace and security and beauty. Remove the constraints and prohibitions which now hinder the release of inner energy, energies and most of the larger evils of society will perish. Through sex, mankind will attain the great spiritual illumination which will transform the world and light up the only path to an earthly paradise. Can you see in this, in her quote, sex is God. Sex is the ultimate thing. Sex is what is the ultimate pleasure to be earned and, and strive for, enjoyed and lived. And that's completely against what God's word says. When sex takes such a central role and place in our lives, 
we can treat it as God, and that's unhealthy. Uh, through the sexual revolution of the 1960s and 70s, the desire for sexual liberation and for freedom has caused uh, a, a huge revolution, a huge difference in how we perceive and see and understand sexuality. And there's a culture war that's going on even today when it comes uh, to sex and everything that are, revolves around it because we've put it in a place of God. We've elevated it to a place that is not healthy for us. And this is not new to humanity. This is not new to, 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 um, to our generation. When you look at the culture of the, of the biblical times, you see that even during the days when Jesus lived, that there was an intense sexual society. There was temple prostitution. There was sexual slavery. There was sexual perversion. There was all types of orgies that were happening. It, it's not just in our society, but this has been seen in generations past and in other societies that the priority becomes sex and sex be takes the place of God and then it's not in a healthy place for us. In Matthew 6 and verse 33, Jesus said, seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously and he will give you everything you need. And so our priorities need to be God and his kingdom. Our prior Jesus needs to be on the throne of, of our lives. Our identity must be found in Christ and not by how we live or how we uh, enjoy sex or how we perceive and see sex through the lens of what culture teaches us. Shanti uh, Feldham is a relationship expert, and she's written a number of books based on her own research as she's interviewed so many people and couples and men and women. And she says this in her book, Highly, um, Highly Happy Marriages. She says, highly happy couples tend to put God at the center of their marriage and the focus on him rather than on their marriage or spouse for fulfillment and happiness. See, we need to have our priorities correct. Sex, God can't... Uh, God can't be cast out and sex take that place, right? Because sex is not God. Sex is not the priority, even though God has created it for us and allows us to enjoy it in the right context and the right means. But here she says, highly happy couples actually put God in the first place, right? Give God the priority and the focus of their marriage and, and seek to please others, the, their spouse, Right? See, what has changed uh, over the generations as well, which we have to be careful of, is the way that we also consume uh, sex, right? Um, in other generations, we didn't have the ability of birth control like we have uh, in our generation and our day and age. The proliferation of pornography has come to a whole nother level in this generation versus in other uh, generations and times. And the ease of access, right, causes us, even within our culture, to look at sex in a completely different way. We've objectified it and taken away the emotional and... Um, the emotional and spiritual aspect of sex and just think of it as an object, as something to be enjoyed, as something that's physical, when in reality, there's so much more to it. The, the ease of access of sex and, and sexual pleasures and the degradation of, of sexual morals in our society today have all led to sex taking a greater place in our culture, in our society, and even the focus of our lives and into a place where it actually shouldn't be. And some of the devastating effects you can see in, on family life and relationships and responsibilities and wholeness. There, there's a lot more brokenness in our lives because of how sex and sexuality have just started to dominate our culture and become part of our identity, right? And there's a lot of brokenness that requires the healing touch of God. So the question remains, does sex take the place of, of God and is that a priority in our life? Do we find value and worth and identity in that or do we find it in Jesus, right? What does actually, this, what does actually sex within the marital relationship really point towards? We saw, I gave you a little glimpse of it before in a previous quote, but here, look at this quote from The Problem of God. The biblical story is that God gives sex as a gift and stitches it into history as the greatest and most powerful nonverbal signal of unity, love, covenant, and commitment, even as a picture of the gospel message itself. The meshing of two souls take place, and the unspoken message is that act is, that act is I belong completely 
totally and exclusively to you. Our separate souls and the personhoods create an entity and unity that did not exist before the act took place to become one. See, this is what happens in a sexual relationship, that two become one. And it's a picture, as he says here, of the gospel itself, the meshing of two souls completely, totally, and exclusively. When we take the beautiful and wonderful symbol and signal, as he says here, of sex and devalue it, exchange it, and even abuse it from what God desired and intended it to be, then we lose the fullness of what it actually points towards, which is pointing towards the gospel and pointing towards Jesus. He, he concludes and he says here, this I propose is precisely what has happened in the misuse of sex in Western culture. He, he comes to this conclusion when he sees what the effect that sex has had when we've elevated it to this place of God, when we've elevated it to a place that's unhealthy and where we, we find our identity in that, where we find where we seek to consume it and always live for pleasure. So he says here, turn on the television, search the internet, look at the billboards and read magazines. Our stories, questions, and praxis have changed. We misused and destroyed one of the central symbols God gave us to define meaning in the world and in turn have called into question the called into question and confused not just sexuality or personhood or marriage, but meaning itself. This is going into, into a much deeper level. Because of this confusion, because of the, the, the symbol that God had given that points towards the gospel, that points towards Christ, that points towards redemption and love and grace and forgiveness and eternity with Jesus, because we've misused this, it's not pointing towards those things, and we've lost even meaning itself. And this is why there's so much warning in the word of God against sexual immorality uh, in God's word. There's uh, so much danger and harm and destruction that can come to our relationships because of this. There's danger and harm that can come not just to us, but to uh, families and society and community and our connection to God. It's not just when, the, when there's sexual immorality, it's not just about one person. There's a ripple effect that affects so many people within your family and community and others. Colossians 3 verse 5 says, so put to death the sinful, earthly things lurking within you. Have nothing to do with sexual immorality, impurity, lust, and evil desires. Don't be greedy, for a greedy person is an idolater worshiping the things of this world. So Paul is saying here, like flee from these things. Put these things to death. We're left with the question, has the pervasiveness of sexuality in our culture left us better or worse? I believe we've lost what it actually points to in the covenanted faithfulness, faithfulness of marriage. We're left really broken. Sam Albury says, desires for things God has forbidden a reflection of how sin has distorted me, not how God has made me. See, God has created all of us as sexual beings. God has worked in our life and God has made us his cre uh, creations. But sin has also entered our life and we have to acknowledge that, that we are broken people. And if we acknowledge our brokenness and acknowledge that we have failed and we acknowledge that sin has come and it's ruined what God really wanted us to experience, whether it's in marriage or whether it's outside of marriage or in whatever experience that might be, we have to acknowledge that brokenness. I've seen it time and time again over the years. I've seen the effect and the impact that sexual immorality has on relationships, has on families, has on communities. It's not just one person that gets affected. There is a ripple effect that happens that affects the other person, affects your friends, affects your community, affects your uh, relationships, affects families around. I remember years ago when I was in Puerto Rico and I was pastoring a church in Puerto Rico and there was a woman uh, that was related to uh, one of the families in our church and this family came and told me because um, this woman's daughters had come to visit and the story just broke my heart because what had happened was that this woman, this single mother of, 
of two teenage girls was dating another man. And that man was actually abusing those teenage daughters. And so those teenage daughters actually reported it to their grandmother. The grandmother took it to the authorities. And finally, it went to the judge. And the judge told the mother, you cannot see this man. This man cannot have any access to your children. You, you have to be totally apart from this man. Do you know the brokenness of the situation led to this woman choosing the man over her own daughters and said, well, if I can't be with that man, well, forget about my daughters. The daughters ended up going and living with the grandmother because she wanted to stay with him, knowing that he was abusing her own daughters. That's the brokenness that we find ourselves in. That's the result of sin. And we need God to heal us. We need Jesus to save us. We need Jesus to redeem us. In the brokenness of society, it is at times like this that we need to show the love of God. This is the irony in the whole thing. Follow with me here. That Jesus and God created sex in the uh, relationship of marriage, in the intimacy of marriage, to point us towards this relationship between Christ and the church, a relationship of love, and because sex is being broken and because it's being misused and misinterpreted, then it doesn't point to that wonderful and beautiful relationship between Christ and the church. But what he calls us as the church is that in those times of brokenness, we show love and kindness to those girls that were being abused by, by their mother's boyfriend. It is at that time when love and grace by the church need to be shown to them so that they see the purity and wholeness of what Jesus offers in love. And that's what we need to experience in our lives as well, in our brokenness, in our pain. In the times when we feel far away from God, we need to feel that love and grace shown by the church. And, and the best and whole relationship that can show that in all its purity and fullness is in the marriage relationship. As a husband loves his wife and the wife loves her husband, and when that so intimate relationship that is unlike any other relationship in the world, when that is seen, that points to the gospel. When that relationship is seen in its fullness and wholeness, it points to what Jesus has done for us. And the irony in this whole thing is that at a time when the church should be showing the love of God, when the church should be extending God's love and grace to others because of the gospel, what really should be pointing towards that is in many situations and circumstances broken. That's why in Ephesians 5 and verse 31 and 32, it says, As the scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. This is a great mystery, but it is an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. And in our brokenness, we need to see the fullness of God's love shown between Christ and the church and the most beautiful symbol and illustration of that is a man and a woman in the covenanted faithfulness of marriage, in the intimacy of sex, and so many times we don't see it because it's broken. This is an eternal reality that we find hard to comprehend and imagine, but God gives us a little bit of a glimpse in the beauty of marriage and the intimacy of sex. The eternal reality sometimes is blocked out of view when sex and intimacy and marriage is not sacred and not revealed for what God intended it to be. Now, I'm not saying that everyone needs to experience this in marriage because there are some that God calls to singleness. So it's not that we experience this, all, or all of us, in, uh, in different situations and circumstances of our life. But what we do see is the pointer. What we do see is the shadow that points to the greater fullness that's seen in Christ. See, marriage and sex is just for a moment. It's just for this life. It won't be extended into eternity. But there's something much better that's waiting for us. And marriage and sex in this world is just pointing to that. It's just a shadow. 
of what is to be experienced. And that's why sex is not God. Jesus is. And the love that he seeks to pour out into our life is something like we would never experience before. John Piper says in this momentary marriage, the meaning of marriage is the display of the covenant-keeping love between Christ and his people. And that's why it's so important to understand and see sex and marriage in its wholeness and for what God intended it to be because it's just a pointer to something that's way more important that lasts for all eternity. And if that sign or symbol is devalued, compromised, or sadly even rejected completely, then how do we put value or worth to what God desires for us in drawing us into a loving relationship with him? I'll finish quickly. The last thing, sex is appetite. This perspective comes from, from sex just being something that satisfies us. When we're hungry, we eat. When we're thirsty, we drink. When we're tired, we, we sleep. And when we're aroused, we have sex. Sex is appetite, right? And in this view, there's no moral value to sex. We're, we're just bodies that desires and craves, right? The naturalistic approach that sanctions our biological appetite removes all moral culpability from our sexual choices, are we just a body, or is there some sort of moral value to it? Is there something more? Is there an emotional quotient? Is there a, a, a spiritual quotient to that, right? In 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 6 and verse 13, Paul says here, but you can't say that our bodies were made for sexual immorality. They were made for the Lord, and the Lord cares about our bodies. Paul, Paul goes on further to talk about the, the weight of the physical act of sex and how that goes beyond just appetite, how that goes beyond just a, a physical act. He says here, don't you realize that your bodies are actually parts of Christ? Should a man take his body, which is part of Christ, and join it to a prostitute? Never. And don't you realize that if a man joins himself to a prostitute, he becomes one body with her? For the scripture says the two are united into one, but the person who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Run from sexual sin. Friends, what we need to realize is that the, the act of sex is not just a physical act. It's not just a, uh, a, something that is, is part of appetite that you just do to satisfy your body. There's something much more, as we talked about, that connects people spiritually and emotionally. And you'll see the pain of it when that is removed and taken away. And when it's not done in its right context, there's pain and brokenness that comes. And sometimes even in that right context, we need to be able to defer one to another. The, the physical act of sex, there, there are emotional consequences to that. Now, Hollywood has done a great disservice to us in our society because we see movies, we see sitcoms, and everyone is sleeping around with one another, and it seems like there's no effect and there's no uh, uh, consequences to that. You don't see the brokenness that it actually leads to. But in our lives, with our friends and with our family members, we see the reality of that and the brokenness that it causes in our relationships and our interactions one with another. Now, there are some, move, some sitcoms and some movies that actually dive into this, and you see how they analyze the effect that these uh, sexual relationships have one on another and the pain and the brokenness that it causes. The sad part of this worldview is that in this mindset, it makes sex all about ourself. Self-pleasure, self-gratification, self-actualization. Do whatever feels good to you. But God designed sex to be other-centered. God designed this relationship in the example that Jesus gave to us as well. He didn't come self-seeking, but came seeking to save others, right? Timothy Keller, in, uh, in The Meaning of Marriage, he says this, sociologists argue that in contemporary Western society, the marketplace has become so dominant that the consumer model increasingly characterizes most relationships and historically were uh, most relationships that historically were covenantal, including marriage. Today, in the culture that we're living in right now, we stay connected to people only as long as they are meeting our particular needs at an acceptable cost to us. There's a transaction. Is it worth it? Right? When we cease to make a profit, that is when the relationship appears to require more love and affirmation from us than we're getting back, then we cut our losses and drop the relationship. Right? Right? 
This is what he's saying is happening in culture. Then he says this. This is also being called commodification, a process by which social relationships are reduced to economic exchange, exchange relationships. And so the very idea of covenant is disappearing in our culture. Covenant is therefore a concept increasingly foreign to us, and yet the Bible says it is the essence of marriage. This is what's lost, the idea of a covenant. We'll be in it for as long as it's good for us, as long as we get pleasure out of it. But when it's not working for me, then I'm just going to let it go. That's the culture that we're living in. And that's how sex is being interpreted as appetite. As long as I have an appetite for it, and as long as I get something from it, then I'll continue to do it. But the moment I don't have any appetite for it, the moment I don't get any pleasure from it, then forget about it. That's not what covenantal faithfulness in marriage is all about. You stick at it through thick and thin, right? And that's why this is connected with the mystery of Christ in the church. It's mutual self-denial that leads to joy and pleasure forevermore. Right? In The Problem of God, Mark Clark says this, okay? That through this act somehow, through this act, we somehow transcend a mere physical unity and experience something deeper, something wonderful and mysterious. Christianity teaches that sex is holistic, Remember I said that from the beginning. We should never get naked and vulnerable with a person only physically without getting naked and vulnerable with them in every other way. Socially, economically, geographically, spiritually, and emotionally, we need to get naked with that person. To do anything else will always end up in a catastrophe. In a culture of hookups, swinging, sexting, pornography, and one-night stands, the Bible says to have sex with someone is to know each other in every way. That's the covenant of marriage. That's the covenant of faithfulness. And it's the same hard, strong, faithful covenant that God makes with us, that he won't deny his love to us, he won't remove his love for us, but he'll continue to show it. And that's what marriage points to. And the moment we remove that in marriage, we lose the, uh, the, the knowledge of it in our relationship with God. We don't see the force of it, the power of that love in our relationship with God. It's the mystery of Christ in the church. God created sex within these contexts, within the context of covenantal love and faithfulness in marriage, and we experience fullness of joy and pleasure and unity and love in that relationship that points to something way beyond that relationship. It points to something in eternity. Now, this can sound restrictive and, and why many people have problems with Christianity and remember that sometimes the best things that we can experience require restrictions, require discipline, focus, and self-denial. Tom Brady, who's playing for uh, the Buccaneers, he's one game away from attending his 10th Super Bowl. Right? They're playing today. And if he wins, he'll be going to the Super Bowl in a couple of weeks' time. Do you think he was able to do that just out of a whim? No, if you see the diet that he's on, if you see the regiment he's on, the training that he's on, at the age of 43, no one's played that well at that age. He's able to do it because of the restrictions he's put on himself so that he can experience the pleasure of winning football games. Restrictions are there to increase our joy and actually increase our pleasure, right? And we need to understand it. Someone asked me this week about Christian sexual principles and whether they're subject, uh, subjected to culture. And, and D.A. Carson gives perspective in this because he says when Christians weigh in in the cultural world about uh, abortion and about sex and other things, in, inevitably people say, oh, Christians shouldn't be weighing in and saying things about that. But when they say things about homelessness and poor and public welfare and other things like that, then it's that, oh, that's a prophetic voice. See, you can't have it both ways. We have to understand that what we see in God's word can't be subjugated to culture, but it transcends culture. It transcends time, right? We have to understand that God is giving us something 
That's so beautiful and wonderful. Mark Clark says, the Christian position, in contrast to this ever-changing target model, is that the biblical definition of sexuality should not be redefined or challenged by a cultural ethos. No matter what culture it exists within, no matter how much a culture progresses, because if the Bible is, in fact, trustworthy and true, it transcends any one culture or time and all the sentiments of that place and moment. It is when we understand this that we can see why the church has continued to preach and practice a biblical informed sexual ethic in the world and why it must continue to do so. And he says it is not because the church likes to judge people or infringe on rights or proselytize. It is about holding fast to the one expression of sex that God designed for our ultimate joy, pleasure, and flourishing, trusting that he knows better than us and then holding that out to the world around us and offering it gladly. I know this is hard to accept. I know this is hard to, to acknowledge, and I understand that. But I hope that I've presented to you a foundation, a basis on which we see these things in the holistic view of sex, right? We have to understand that sex should actually draw us to God. I just wanna close with this one quote um, from Timothy Keller. He says this in his book, The Meaning of Marriage. The reason that marriage is so painful and yet wonderful is because it is a reflection of the gospel, which is painful and wonderful at once. The gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. This is the only kind of relationship that we're really transform us. Friends, if you're here today and you're broken, I want to tell you that Jesus loves you, that he invites you into relationship with him. If you're here today and you're single and you're desiring to get married, Jesus loves you and invites you into a relationship with him. He sees your pain if you're married and, and you're struggling and you're feeling the brokenness and the lack of joy and fulfillment and you're seeing maybe not experiencing sex to what it should be, Jesus invites you into a relationship with him. If you're here today and you're feeling, well, I'm attracted to somebody of the same gender or I'm, I'm confused about my gender identity and maybe you're feeling lost and alone, I want to tell you that we love you. As a church, we love you. As a church, we long to walk with you. And that Jesus loves you and invites you into a relationship with him. And he cares for you. If you're here and you're divorced and you feel, felt the pain of a broken relationship, unmet expectations and brokenness, Jesus loves you and invites you into a relationship with him. If you're a widow and grieving the loss of a spouse, Jesus loves you and invites you into a relationship with him. If you've been abused or hurt or taken advantage of, I want to encourage you to seek the proper help, seek police authorities. Uh, um, you know, for that, talk to a counselor, right? But also know that Jesus invites you into a relationship with him to redeem you, to heal you, to help you. If you're here and you feel like you failed sexually with, with adultery or pornography or in, in other areas, please know that there's forgiveness with Jesus. Please know that he loves you and he invites you into a relationship with him. His arms are stretched open wide for you. In whatever area of brokenness you find yourself in today, we're all broken in some way and in some form. I'm broken. We all are broken. Know that Jesus comes to redeem us. Know that we need redemption. That's the beauty of the gospel. That's the beauty of what sex and marriage points us towards. That deep love expressed between Christ and the church in the fullness of the gospel to know that he deeply loves us and cares for us and wants to know us and have a relationship with us. We're gonna sing this song, You Invite Me In. And please remember and know Jesus invites you into a relationship with him. Let's sing.